everyone. How are you all? It's great to have you here. Um, my name is Ben. I'm from uh, the City of Marion Libraries, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Um, as we get started, I would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on tonight is the traditional lands of the Ghana people, and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. We also acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Ghana people today. Now, hopefully you're all here for the same reason. Um, tonight we have a, a very special guest. Um, so we're welcoming uh, Fiona McIntosh to come and speak to us tonight and to um, hear about um, her latest book. Um, if you are here and you haven't heard of Fiona or if you've been brought along by a friend, I'll just run through a couple of little points for you. <laughs> so as you all should know, Fiona is an internationally best-selling author of numerous uh, novels for adults and children. Uh, known for her meticul meticulous research, she writes across a variety of genres. Um, for those of you who weren't aware, before becoming a full-time author, uh, Fiona co-founded an award-winning travel magazine with her husband, which they ran for 15 years while raising their twin sons. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> um, now, Fiona roams the world researching and drawing inspiration for her novels and runs a series of highly respected uh, fiction masterclasses. Tonight, Fiona is here to talk uh, to us about her latest book, The Diamond Hunter. After the event, you will have the opportunity to purchase Fiona's books in the foyer, thanks to Shakespeare's books, and Fiona will also be available for signings. Um, just a quick Housekeeping note, if, uh, if you are after the bathrooms, they are just out the corridor, down past the uh, cafe and down the next corridor. Um, but without any further ado from myself, I'd like to welcome Fiona to the stage. Thank you very much. I'm going to put this here so you can see the sparkles, all right? So. I've been traveling the country and I've been wearing these sparkly outfits everywhere and I'm so over them. It's everyone who's ever been pregnant, you know what it's like when you're finished with your pregnancy clothes, you just want to burn them. Um, and that's how I feel about my sparkly dresses. And this is the last event and I've had a bit of a break. So I looked at the sparkly clothes and I thought, I don't want to do that again. I really, and one of them needs serious suction. Um, <laughs> And I didn't want to wear it again, so forgive me that I'm in a nice, loose, floaty thing. But I've got sparkly shoes on for you, so that's, that's just for you lot, just for you lot. Well, welcome. Um, I hope you're not in the wrong spot, any of you. Um, glad you made it. Thank you. Uh, this is the last of a long tour around the country, so you're the special ones, and thank you for... Um, coming back, because we had to rearrange this. When this was first uh, set up, my publisher very kindly set it up while I was actually in London. And I had to say to them, no, I'm actually in London. I'm not going to be able to make it. So uh, there was this fury of activity um, to swap it around. So I'm very grateful you all have turned up again. So thank you very much for that. So what, do we, what should we talk about? Firstly, did you all get your lovely little sparkly gift? Thank you, thank you. That really, we like to always come with something for all of you, to just say 
thank you for making the effort. It is a big effort to come out here and, and drive here and get parking and give up your evening. So that we're always going to do something. And I'll tell you um, about the book for next year and our next big headache about what to give you for next year. Um, because that, that is now always roaming through my mind. As I'm thinking about what to write next, I'm thinking, but what gift will we give them? So that's all coming into it. Um, it yes, well, that's... That's what it'll have to be. I'll, I'll get to it, I promise. And Harry, who apparently stalks me around the country now, um, she will remind me if I've forgotten anything. So, well, chocolates. And hates chocolates, for sure. I've got hecklers in the audience now. <laughs> All right, um, where, where shall I begin? Shall I just talk about first where an idea comes from, where this idea came from for the Diamond Hunter? Um, is everybody happy we start there? We will have questions, so don't feel we won't... I won't answer any of your questions. We'll sit here all night if we have to and get through all the questions. Or, and Elton John is playing somewhere in the city, so he's going to get in our way anyway, so I'm very glad you're all here. Um, OK, so first, in order to tell you about this book, I have to take you back to The Pearl Thief. Um, have you... You all know The Pearl Thief? Thank you very much. That book went gangbusters last year because of people like you. And what it did to me, um, it put me in a corner. I became very frightened about writing, and that's never happened before. And I'll tell you why. Normally, I write with no sense of my own storytelling. I just write organically. There's very rarely a plan. In fact, there's never a plan, but there's always a loose thread of an idea. But I never know what's going to happen with my characters. I don't know the beginning, middle or end. I know none of it. It just happens as, you know, as it's unfolding um, each day. And I don't have a sense of it. So by the end of it, when I actually send it off to my editor and to all the masterclasses in this room, and there's a little gang of them right down here beaming at me. I'll make them stand up soon. Um, don't do as I do, do as I say, which is please read your work before you send it out anywhere. I just send off my first draft to my editor because she's always waiting for it. Um, and so as she's reading the first draft, I'm reading my book for the first time because I never read back. I've never read what I've written. So I'm reading it for the first time and I'm always amazed to think, well, this is a bloody good story, actually. <laughs> I'm really surprised that there, there, there is a story and that all the characters are in motion and they're all doing terrible things to one another and letting each other down and the story's unfolding. It's always a delicious surprise. But with The Pearl Thief, I had this real sense in my heart of what I was writing. And Katerina was a very important character to me. And she, um, look, she took hold of my life and I really, for the first time ever, lived and breathed a character. And I, this book became so important to me. Um, I needed it to be a hit because if you'd all said, oh, it was all right, but, you know. But everybody really, really loved it, you know. So... I knew it was going to be a hit, and it was a hit, and what that did to me was make me crawl into a little box and think, I can't follow that. I just can't follow that. That was my opus. I'm never going to write a better book than that, and the whole gang's going to be expecting something as good at least as that, so how am I going to do that? And that was troubling me. Um, anyway, I was in York, and this I am getting to a point. I was in York 
gathering up a final scene. You know that scene in The Pearl Thief where they go to the York Minster and um, Katarina's listening to the organ being played? I won't spoil anything for anyone who hasn't read it. And we're building to that very big emotional moment, the reveal of something. Um, I was gathering up that scene, and my cousin, who I hadn't seen for probably 25 years, got wind that I was in England, and he was in England, and he'd lived overseas all of his life, and so had I, and we, he suddenly realised, we're both in the same country, so he rang me, and he said, Fiona, stay where you are, don't you dare leave York, I'm coming, and he got in a train, and he came up to York, and we sat down in a beautiful tea rooms, and over copious uh, cups of tea, we caught up on each other's lives. And inevitably, we came around to, what am I going to write next? And I said, well, Andrea, for the first time ever, I don't really know what I'm going to write next, because I feel very cornered and a bit nervous about it. And he said, well, all right, what would it take for you to be able to write the next story. And I said, it would have to be something really wildly different to what I've written before. So he said, well, what does that mean? Because he hadn't read my books. And I said, well, it would have to get away from the two world wars. It would have to get away from Europe. It would have to get away from um, uh, the sort of the fashions that I like and, and the time, all the eras that I usually play around in. I and I don't know, it can't have a damaged woman in it. It can't have a great big romance. And he, he said, I've got it. He said, Fiona, write about diamonds. And as he said this, I realized that I was sitting with the one person who could help me because Andrew had spent his entire working career with De Beers. And how convenient. And he said, if you do it, come on, write about diamonds. And I said, uh. he said, look, I'll tell you why you should write about diamonds. Diamonds means Africa. So it's going to walk you right away from that European playground that you're used to being in. Diamonds, if you, f if you go to where it all begins, he said it's 1869, so far away from what you're used to. And he said the fashions, the tropes, the very way that people lived, he said, is, it's all going to be so different to everything you've written about before. He said, come on, do it. And I was just sort of like reaching for it. And he said, if you say yes, I'll meet you in Africa and we'll do this together. And so I said, yes. And he said, good. And so with that, we sort of crossed pinkies. And he said, I'll see you in Africa. Get yourself to Cape Town in January, because he said, that's when we need to be there. So I said, okay, we're on. And it was sort of, um, this would have been August 2017. So in January 2018, I flew into Cape Town, and there he was, standing there. And we ran up to each other. So we haven't seen each other in 25 years, and then suddenly we're meeting all over the place. Um, and he said, all right. So he looked at me, and he said, right. So what's the story? And... <laughs> I'd forgotten to tell him that I never have a story. And I said, I haven't got a story, Andrew. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, no, there's no, there's no story. I mean, we're meeting in Africa and we're going to. And he was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I don't. He said, I, well, what? and I said, well, just relax, because I do know how to do this. And I said, if we just move me around the places that you know where the diamonds are, just keep talking to me and things will happen, I promise. He said, oh, I can't, I can't bear this. And I said, no, you've just got to trust me. I promise you I'll make it work. So, you know, we started in Cape Town 
and uh, we hired this brilliant guide, uh, a historical guide, and I said to him, all right, so we're writing, about, his name was Alastair, we're writing about this time, tell us about the people coming in. And he said, well, they would have all come in from ships. They came in from all over the world. The diamond rush began in the late 1860s and people came from China, they came from Canada, they came from all over the world, Australia, loads of Australians were there, converging on Cape Town by ship. And I said, okay, so they're spilling off these ships and I said, where are the diamond fields? And he said, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And I said, oh, all right, well, how did they all get there? And he said, well, Fiona, by ox wagon. And I said, oh my gosh. And he said, I need to teach you about ox wagons. And I said, well, for me to really understand it, I, I need to, you're gonna have to paint a picture. I'd, I can't understand what that journey will be like. And he said, get in the car. And he put me in the car. And we drove hundreds of kilometers into the desert, hundreds. And I became that, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I was really, I was so over it. I hated it. I absolutely hate I don't like car journeys anyway, especially if I'm not behind the wheel. If I'm driving, I'm fine. But if I'm a passenger, I get bored really fast. And um, I was really over it. Because there's nothing where you're, it, as soon as you leave Cape Town, you're in desert. Um, and it was hideous. Anyway, he got us to this sort of um, this uh, cliff, almost like a cliff. And I began to understand that these ox wagons didn't go on a flat surface. It wasn't flat desert. It was over gorges and big, big, big ranges. These oxen of about, you know, 18 oxen dragging all this stuff. And they were dragging um, all sorts of equipment, you know, it was as well as people. Anyway... So we finally stopped and we got out of the car. He switched off the engine and he stood there and he, and he went silent, so I went silent. So did Andrew, probably praying that something was happening to me. I was, I was getting something. And I stood there and I thought, oh, gosh, I hate this. You couldn't hear anything. All I could hear was my own breathing. And you're not, you're not normally aware of your own breath, you know. So that's what I could hear. And I said... I can't hear anything. And he said, that's the point. Not, a, not an insect, not a bird. There was no trees, no plants, not a single creature, no people, no huts, nothing. Desolation. And I said, you mean to say they crossed this? And he said, yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And he said, and they, didn't ju they weren't just men. There were pregnant women, children, all sorts coming across this terrible, terrible landscape. And he said a lot of them lost their lives. He said this whole place was overrun with um, lions. So he said lions had, a, you know, it was like a smorgasbord for the lions. So people were being carted off in the middle of the night. And all, it was just horrendous. And so I began to think um, that I now understood it. That whole silence thing really got to me. And I was like, yeah, let's get back to Cape Town. Um, but I began to have a feeling for where this story might go. And Andrew kept looking at me out of the side of his eye. He was getting really worried. Anyway, then we had to fly um, to where the mines are, the diamond mines. And these are in a place called Kimberley. Now, um, the Kimberley mine, is it, what, it was n there was nothing there when these people arrived. Anyway, as we're flying there, I began to tell it, Andrew this story. And he was sort of scratching off his own face. He said, how is this, 
what, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And I said, so the story is about this couple, um, and I won't spoil anything, I promise. It's about this couple. She comes from a wealthy family, and he's a poor engineer. Now, in a capricious moment, she's decided to fall in love and marry this man, much against her family's wishes. And because he can't bear the, the disdain of this family, he decides, well, I'm going to take us off and we're going to go to Australia. And at least I can get you away from your family. And they allow it because they think, well, Australia's got a lovely stratas of society and she will at least have a good life. So they let, let them go. But when the ship um, docks in Cape Town, he gets off, everybody gets off, waiting for it to be restocked to make the next haul through to um, Australia. And um, he is seduced by this idea of the diamond rush. Now, a rush really means just that, people literally picking up their skirts and running um, to get to somewhere first. He hears about it and he decides, I'm going to take my wife and our young child and we are going to go and seek our fortune in the diamond fields. And I've told Andrew all of this, and he said, that's amazing. How did you do that? So I said, okay. He said, and then what? And I said, no idea. When we get, <laughs> when we get there, Andrew, the next bit will arrive into my mind. So I said, take me to this place and show me. And so we got to the Kimberley mine. As I'm telling you, it wasn't there at the time when these people arrived. When my gang arrives, they went to alluvial diggings, which literally means, you know, the shaking uh, by the riverside and hoping to see something sparkly in there. And of all these hundreds of thousands of people who converged on this area, no one was finding diamonds. It was only the first people that got there. They were scooping them up out of the water like that in, in, by the handful. They were just rolling down in the water, but by the time the gang got there, they were thin on the thin in the shallows, you know. There was so there were a lot of hopeless people standing, you know, knee deep in the water and finding nothing. But they had to keep working, and a tented city grew up around this place. It was like a shanty town, and it was hideous, full of disease, full of drunken men, full of violence towards the women. Just the most hideous place of hopelessness. And I, I was telling Andrew all this, and I said, and around this, this poor little girl, who should be living the life of um, absolute privilege back home, is running around through these, these camps. And so Andrew said, all right, so what's going to happen, Fiona? What's going to happen? He was sort of almost fainting with joy that something was <laughs> coming through. And I said, well, James Knight, and I'm not spoiling anything, James Knight, the father, is digging uh, or doing this shaking and next to him is a friend he's made, a Zulu warrior. And this little girl, it's her friend. She's the one who introduces these two men. And because she can't pronounce his name, which is Zenzeli, she decides to give him her own name, which is Joseph One Shoe, because he only wears one shoe. Um, you have to read the book to understand where that name comes from. But anyway, she calls him Joseph Wanshu, and this little girl and this, and this man become firm friends. And so he works alongside the father. The word goes up that a massive diamond has been found, and this is the Eureka Diamond, of the fame of the Eureka Diamond. It was found on a farm, and this, far and this is all truth, this farm was owned by two very dour, 
Boer farmers called De Beers. They were brothers. It was the De Beers farm. And so these people just picked up shovels, picked up families, children, spades, buckets, picked up their lives and began running on foot if they didn't have a horse or a donkey or a, a wagon. They ran the many, many miles to get to this farm because the first person there could stake out their claim and the next person would stake out theirs and start digging straight away. It was, it was the wild, wild west. It was madness. Um, and so this is where the big hole began, the Kimberley mine that today is so deep it can be seen from space. And it was all dug by hand. This huge, has anyone been to Kimberley in South Africa? You know what I'm talking about. You know how big this hole is. It was dug by men and muscles, no machinery. And it's enormous. It's just enormous. It's a pity you've been there because I can't lie now. I have, to, <laughs> I have to tell the truth. So anyway, it's enormous. Anyway, they ran there and started digging. And so begins the story. And Andrew was saying... What happens next? And I said, well, Andrew, I don't know. It will formulate itself as, as we go along. But what I did know is, the one thing I did know, and this is what sold me on the whole story, I knew I was onto something. As I was there learning about Kimberley and looking at this big hole, I thought, this is not a story about the privileged mother and the povo father. This is actually a story about their child. Because in amongst all of their terrible carelessness is this five-year-old uh, daughter called Clementine who is running wild like an absolute urchin uh, and she should be living in all the splendor that her mother could have given her but she's got her running around a campsite and her greatest friend is a Zulu who um, she is teaching how to speak English. And so I, as soon as that actually filtered into my mind, I thought, I've got this. And as I told Jack, I was telling um, Andrew this story about this little girl, he was literally fainting. I mean, he was just, I, I had to just give him oxygen and say, all right, don't worry, the story will now form itself. We can go home because I've got it. I spent most of the time in Africa down mines, just understanding what it's like to, to, to find this what's called kimberlite, learning the science of diamonds, learning how they're formed, why they're formed. Very interesting. I won't give you a, a lesson in geology, but it's really, really interesting. Um, and then I, and I also managed to stay at the Kimberley Club. Do you know the Kimberley Club? Okay. So I was lucky enough to stay there, and this was the gentleman's club of the, 18, the late 1800s. And so I got to stay in one of these rooms, and it hasn't changed much. I think they're still serving the same sort of uh, meatloaf that they were serving back then. <laughs> it's really, really bad. The food's really bad. Um, but it was thoroughly, uh, I mean, I'm glad it hasn't changed because it delivered to me everything I needed to feel on your behalf. So after I'd done Africa and kissed Andrew goodbye and said, stop worrying, I will I'll send you the manuscript. You can read it in about, you know, three or four months. I'll send you the manuscript. I then decided, okay, now I need to do more traveling um, to, to get this story. In order to understand the ancient world of diamonds or even the Victorian era of diamonds, I really needed to understand the modern era. And so on your behalf, on behalf of all the people here, I decided I should go to Antwerp for you. Um, so I did. 
Off I went to Antwerp. Who else would go to Antwerp for you? I did. So I planned this trip that I would um, land in Antwerp. I would give myself an entire day to get to the Jewish district, which is where all the diamond action is, and then I could fly on from there. So I had it all worked out, you see. Flew into Antwerp, got in a taxi, and said, go to the Jewish district, go to the diamond district. The man looked at me a little bit funny, but, you know, who's he to question me? And we got there. He let me out. And you could have heard a pin drop. It was a Jewish holiday. And it, <laughs> it was and a public holiday. Everything was locked up. Every single shop, every one, had a padlock on it. And I stood, I, I stood against a wall, and I would just could not believe that I'd made such an error. And I felt so hopeless. The only thing I could do is what any girl would do in this situation, and that is to start crying. Because... <laughs> I felt, I felt, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I had a whole day to kill. Yes, I could have gone shopping in Antwerp, but I was here to get this story. And so I was leaning back against this wall and sort of, I wasn't sobbing, but I was, you know, I was doing all this thinking, how rubbish am I? And from over there came this, this is the first and only person I saw in this place on these cobbled streets. This beautiful man came walking down and he had a cup of coffee in his hand, a, takeaway. He was tall and golden and very beautiful, the sort I'd put in a book, you know. Anyway, and I was thought, gosh, you're handsome. You know, I couldn't help it. I was sort of looking at him. Anyway, he walked and he nearly got past me, not quite. And he looked back and he said to me, are you all right? And he could see I wasn't. And he said, um, would you like to go and have a cup of coffee? And I was like, yes, I would like to. <laughs> like to have a cup of coffee. I really just wanted to take all my clothes off and go for a cup of coffee with him, you know? So he's beautiful. He said, but before we go for a cup of coffee, what are you doing here? Why? And why are you crying? And all this. So, so I told him. And he, and he got a bigger and bigger smile. And he said, so for a top researcher, you really didn't do your research very well, did you? So that was embarrassing. But he said, and you want to get into this building? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And I said, uh, but it's not going to happen. I guess I'll have to come back to Antwerp, but I don't have time. I've got to leave tonight. And he said, well, you're in luck because I own this building. <laughs> and he got out the keys and he let me and he said, come on in. And what this place is, um, I'll t I can tell you now, every single diamond, modern diamond in the world, every single one passes under this roof. And it passes under that roof in order to have a laser number put on it. So, and then it's dispersed to wherever it has to go to be brokered, sold off, sent to manufacturing jewelers, sent to um, bespoke jewelers, or, or sent to somebody who just wants to buy a stone. But what they can do is look under a magnifying glass and they can see it's got a number and they can check that number with an email to this guy's business and they will authenticate that diamond. So you know you can use that diamond or keep that diamond knowing there's no blood on that diamond at all. So it hasn't been achieved through child labor, slavery, um, you know, terrorism. Nothing is attached to that diamond. It's been mined um, conscientiously and the right way, and it's got a laser number. So every diamond goes through, and he allowed me to pick up diamonds like this. <laughs> 
That's what you want to do. And I even had this idea, there's a, there's a film with Demi Moore in it. I'm sure you'll all recognise it when I tell you. And she was in diamond sorting, and she had the idea to push diamonds into her nails because she had quite long nails. And I thought, maybe I could just do that <laughs> and walk out. He wouldn't know, and he's trusting me so much. And I thought, what are you thinking? You know, what are you thinking? It was just a mad moment that I thought I could get away with all these diamonds. Anyway, beautiful man. And he said to me, Fiona, whenever you're in Antwerp, um, and we'd spent so long together, there was no time to go out for a coffee, um, so I, which was a bit of a shame. But he said, come back, I'll take you for that coffee. In fact, I'll take you to dinner. Um, and he said, and I'll bring you back through here, anything you need. Just beautiful man. So with that, I now had that, and I thought, well, now I have to go to Amsterdam. If I've done Antwerp, all of the people here need me then to go to Amsterdam for them. So off I went to Amsterdam, and I learned about diamond polishing, or cutting and polishing. Has anyone ever seen a diamond cut? It's the most tense thing in the world. Because someone, the poor man who has to do it, or woman, but they're all Jewish because it's a skill that's handed down through the generations. You have to develop this skill, and it was the Jews that had this particular skill. What they do is they look at it under a, a huge microscope and they look at all the facets and all the occlusions and all this sort of thing in there and they decide that is the point at where that diamond needs to be cut. And then he has to push his microscope or his big magnifying glass away and then with a chisel and a hammer, he has to, with his naked eye, tap it, hit it and hope that that diamond will split exactly where he needs it to split. Now imagine, that's okay with a tiny diamond, imagine something like the Hope Diamond coming in or the Kohenor or the, well, yeah, the Kohenor that's gone into the Crown Jewels. Um, you know, you've, you've got a diamond of this size and they want 25 different jewels out of it. He's got to make all those cuts. And I watched one man doing a cut and to tell you what, I held my breath. I absolutely held my breath and went, I went silent. I almost wanted to look away. And when he did it, I was like, oh, my gosh. That is so tense. And he said, thank you for staying quiet. Because he said, you literally break out in a sweat. So the men who were doing the really big diamonds, it must have been traumatic. Because there was always an audience and insurance brokers and all sorts of bankers, all sorts of people standing around to watch this cut being made. So after I'd done that, I felt, okay, I've got this. I can now... There was one more place I had to go. Where do you think I would need to go after that? Hatton Garden. Absolutely. Hatton Garden was the um, epicentre of diamonds through that period and continued to be so for a long time. But it was around in the sort of 1970s. It began to lose its luster, began to lose its... Um, it's kudos, I suppose, to Antwerp. Antwerp is now where all the diamonds are bought and sold. But, and they have a big bourse there where everyone from all over the world comes to buy and sell diamonds. However, Hatton Garden still has some of that romance about it. And I needed Hatton Garden to deliver that to me. And I was very lucky. I got behind the scenes with an old jeweler. And he began to tell me about his um, father, um, who knew a lot about the Victorian times. And he just showed me all the equipment they used. And so I was able to put that all into the book. And I hope that when you read it or you have read it, you felt you were walking through the streets of Hatton Garden in, in the 1890s when the book um, 
takes you there in the 1890s. So with all of that information, I had still didn't have the story. I was able to go home and just sit down and write something and just see what came out. And what came out was this story that some of... Who's read it now already? Thank you. So for those of you who've read it, that's what came out. Um, my first reader is my 91-year-old mother because she doesn't read anything else. She does crosswords and she watches The Bold and the Beautiful. Don't ask me why. Don't <laughs> ask me why. But our whole lives are governed by The Bold and the Beautiful. If we don't get back in time, it's the end of the world, you know. Um, and I always say to her, Mum, I can watch the 8,000th episode and tell you what's been happening for the previous 7,999. She said... I don't care, I need this. And so she sit and we all think, okay. But she must read my manuscript for the only reason that she can lord it over all of you and say, <laughs> oh, I read that a year ago, you know. So she read it and I said, what do you think, mum? You know, you want your mum to love your stuff. And she said, well, um, I feel like you're just writing your own story. And honestly, I can put my hand on my heart and say to you, that I did not realize that that's what I was doing when I was writing this story. But the mind is a funny old landscape and it brings all sorts of stuff to you, particularly if you're in the creative, um, you're in creating something. It delivers stuff to you subconsciously. When I was growing up, when I was little, my father worked in the gold mines. Uh, of Africa, in West Africa. And Dad went out in about 1962, I think it was, and when he got there, um, he, was, he had quite a senior job of um, getting the most pure gold out of all this crush that they did. So that was his job, getting that beautiful block of gold poured. Um, and so he was there without any wife or children or anything. And so the company wanted to give him a housekeeper. They didn't want to put a woman in there. That would have been a bit awkward. So there, there was a young man in the nearby village who said he would like to do it. And so they put this beautiful young man, I think he was 22. His name is Adongo Frafra. And Dad and Adongo lived together for a year and became the closest of friends, a bit like James Knight and... and Joseph. Odongo couldn't speak English when he came into Dad's house. He could only click. So he used to click at Dad, and Dad used you know, click his like that. That's how, he'd, that's how he'd talk to Dad. And Dad learnt to interpret the clicks. And so they got on famously, these two. Anyway, out we came a year later. Um, Graham was about six, I was three, and my mum. And I saw Adongo for the first time and utterly fell in love with him. Just this tall, beautiful black man. I mean, he was jet black. He was shiny jet black and beautiful and very handsome. And he thought, he thought I was quite funny because I would click back at him all the time. You know, I didn't know what I was saying. I was probably saying, doesn't mum look like a donkey or something like that, you know. But I was clicking, clicking, clicking with him and he thought this was quite funny. And I so fell in love with him that mum told me that I used to um, wrap my arms and legs around his very long leg and a dongo would walk around the house with me <laughs> on him for most of the day, just I was always on him. I was on his back. I was in his arms. He'd be doing something and I'd be in his arms or I'd be talking to him all the time. I never shut up. And, uh, you know, I know, that's a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> I just went on and on and on. And anyway, mum used to homeschool us on the veranda and every time we finished a lesson, 
I would rush to find a dongo and I'd make him sit down and I'd say, we're going to do our two times table. And I'd teach him tables, I'd teach him spelling, I taught him how to write his name in English. And it was just this constant chatter. I actually taught him how to speak English. So the clicks disappeared and Odongo became fluent over the next sort of four years that we were there. He became fluent and he was able to just converse with everybody. He was brilliant and very, very funny. He was always teasing us. Um, so he was just this great guy and he was my best friend um, in the world. And I had completely forgotten that. So when the moment came for Odongo, um, for us to leave, uh, I remember Adongo was carrying me, and in those days, 1967, uh, anyone old enough, 1969, whatever it was, you walked across the tarmac to um, metal steps, and then you climbed up the steps and got in your um, jet to go wherever you're going to go. And Adongo was carrying me, and as we got to these steps, he started handing me over to my father. And I sensed something was wrong about that, because, you know, and I clung a bit harder to him. And I said to mum and dad, is, Adongo is coming. And they said they had to tell me then that Adongo was not coming. He would be staying behind in Africa. And World War III erupted on that tarmac <laughs> to the point where I think the pilot was crying, the stewardess was crying. <laughs> I was in complete meltdown as, a, as only a seven-year-old can. Um, my parents were distraught. They had to peel me off a dongo and as they got one hand off and started on the other I'd put it back it was just and he was sobbing it was just I think only my brother was like oh let's go shall we you know and it was terrible it was terrible and I remember sitting on dad's lap and looking out of that tiny window and waving to him and that's the last time I ever saw him so, and I know in question time, you're going to say, haven't you thought about going to see him? And of course I have, many, many times, but my father asked me not to. He said, look, um, at Ghana is quite a strange old place. Its politics are up and down. And if you go all guns blazing in there with gifts for a dongo and this, you know, Australian coming, looking like she owns the world sort of thing, you, he, he might have poor members in his family or he might have um, people, uh, unsavory people who are watching this and they might put pressure on him to start getting money out of Australia. So, and a lot of the crime, you know, a lot of the scams come out of Ghana, unfortunately. So he said, I would prefer you not to disrupt his life. And so that's why I haven't gone back. But he lives in my heart and Obviously, Clementine is me and um, Adongo is Joseph Wanshu. So when you do read this story, that's the emotional connection there, I believe. And mum nailed me. She got it absolutely right that, in yes, indeed, um, I, that is the story of the two of us coming through in that story. And I've never put myself in a story before and I never will again. So forgive me for that, but I'm trying to make a better book than The Pearl Thief. Um, so I was pulling out all the stops to, to make this happen. Um, what else can I tell you? Oh, I can tell you a couple of nice, um, lovely snippet that I learnt whilst I was in Antwerp. Um, Ian Fleming, the writer... He used to be a diamond sorter before he found fame as a, as a storyteller. And there is a particular um, um, uh, equation to convert carrots into ounces. 
because a lot of the Brits needed to, yeah, we understand carrots, but we'd rather see it in ounces to understand what we're dealing with. So to make that equation, it's something like 1 over 147 or something, 145 or 142, 1 over 142. And when you do whatever that piece of maths is, it comes out as 0 0.007. And so that is the myth of where James Bond comes from. And that pleased me hugely, because I'm a Daniel Craig fan. So that was lovely. Um, also, carrots. Do you know where the, the carrots come from? I mean, carrots in gold, um, when my father was working with carrots, it was about getting purity. So 24 carat gold is the most pure form of gold that you can get. It's nearly 100%. Um, but carrots with diamonds is about weight. Um, and the way they got there was um, carob beans. Carob beans, wherever you get them, are uniform in their weight. So it doesn't matter where you pick them up from. If you put four carob beans on a, on a balance, it will balance perfectly always the same. And so medieval people really preferred to use the carob bean to measure their diamonds because they would get that accurate reading. And it got bastardized into carrot. So that's where that comes from. Don't say I don't teach you stuff before you leave here. More than Elton John will do for you, I promise. Um, what else can I tell you? What else can I tell you about um, diamonds? Was there anything else I needed to tell you? Um, no, I've told you carrots. I've told you everything I need to tell you about that. Okay, so um, the Diamond Hunter um, has been number one... Uh, for the last three weeks. Um, it's the number one in us. Thank you. Um, we've, can I, I just have to tell you how we've got to that um, lovely equation that I've just uh, taken all the kudos for. Um, there are other people in front of me like horrible Jack Reacher. No, we love Jack Reacher, but, <laughs> or James Patterson, but only a couple of people in front. Um, last week, it was only Jack Reacher in front of me. Um, so we don't count the internationals. We absolutely take no notice of Bluey or the Diary of a Wimpy Kid <laughs> or any of those people who write children's stories. We just get rid of all that rubbish out of the way, right? And so that leaves behind the only Australian, and that is me. So we were number one for three weeks. Um, thank you. So I've cheated a little bit there. And I'll know tomorrow if I'm still number one, but I've probably been knocked off my perch by now. But yeah, look, it's, uh, it, it obviously is selling very well. And so many people have come up to me and said, well, I like this better than the Pelican. I can't believe they're saying it, but a lot of people have written to me and said, it's your best yet. My editor feels it's the best yet. So all that is doing to me is making me feel like I need to be hospitalized for the next one because... <laughs> I can't tell you what pressure that puts on the next book. I, do you want to know a little bit about the next book? Okay, because I've only got about 10,000 words to go and then it's done. Um, so I'm really thrilled. I'm going to be taking you back to World War I and we're going to France. Um, and it is going... Oh, the other thing with this story, sorry to flip you around. The, the great thing about The Diamond Hunter is it's not a love story. But it is a love story between this little girl and um, uh, Joseph Wanshu. It's a it's a love it's a story of friendship and a that kind of love that can't be broken, um, even though there are tremendous betrayals around that friendship. It will not be broken. And so, 
I was very pleased that I did fulfill my wish to walk away from everything I'd written before to give you just something different because I don't want you to compare it to The Pearl Thief. Um, so I did that and now we can return with a big sigh and say, we can have a love story again. So, th so this story is lots of, there's a bit of that going on and I'm very pleased to be back in that um, environment again. Um, but there's also a lot of war. World War I was such an ugly, terrible, long war um, of attrition. And so there is a, there's a lot of that to get through. But it's a wonderful story about champagne during World War I. So we are going, to, I'm taking you to Epinay. Um, we're going into that beautiful landscape of the Champagne region. And the story is about, without ruining it for you, it's, I was inspired by um, Verve Clicquot. Do you, I'm sure you've all drunk Verve Clicquot. Do you know what Verve stands for? Stands for widow. So it was the widow Clicquot. And so it was this w wonderful woman who, when her husband died, uh, women in French um, law back in the day, they weren't allowed to in... I don't think they were allowed to in Britain... Um, but certainly in France, a widow was allowed to inherit in the champagne industry. So she could just take over her husband's business. And so this woman did. Um, Mrs. Clicquot became the widow Clicquot and she took her husband's champagne house into a whole new stratosphere. She came up with the most incredible ideas. Likewise, at around the same time, Pomeray. Mr. Pomeray died and Madame Pomeray took over his house she was inspired by the Verve Clicquot, and she too did amazing things with that brand Pomeray. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to write a story about a female champagne maker. And I was thinking, and what am I going, and I'm going to put her with a British soldier. <laughs> and, you know, everyone in, in Penguin Random House went, yes, yes. <laughs> Champagne and sex and all of this. So it's just, just lovely. You know, we all got, all the girls got really excited. And of course, once I start writing, it doesn't actually go quite how we planned. So, but anyway, it, we're getting there. I'm getting there. Um, I'm 10,000 words short of finishing that. And it's very exciting. Um, it's a lovely story. But we're all saying, what are we going to give them all next year? <laughs> so, I mean, a bottle of champagne would, that would be quite expensive because I've probably met 5,000 people around the country. So, but we've got to think of something that excites you because this little, um, this lovely little clip you've got is really pretty. When they told me about it, I thought, oh, that's going to go tacky. I don't want anything to do with that. But when I saw it, it was so pretty. Um, so we've got to keep up that quality. And we're all coming up with wild ideas at the moment. Um, I can even tell you about the 2021 book, if you want. Because, OK, 2021 book, it's going to be a marvellous spy story. Um, and it's going to be set in the interwar years. So about 1937. Um, and it's going to be around the time that... Um, the Brits... There were a lot of people in Britain and around Europe who thought... Um, and particularly in Britain, though, who thought Hitler was a fairly decent guy because he'd, he'd brought Germany back up 
with some dignity to where it needed to be after World War I. It had been so humiliated. So Hitler had brought, put, put this sense of nobility back into Germany and, and begun to make people feel proud of um, their, the fatherland, so to speak, again. Um, but there was a whole seam in British um, government that thought, no, we do not trust this guy because he's got big plans again. So um, it is the story will arrive into that point, I believe, where um, people are beginning to put Britain on a war footing, but in a secretive way. And so that's what that story is about. And any of you who follow me on Facebook would have seen me uh, on steam trains and things like that in, in up in Yorkshire. Well, that's that story coming together. So I do work two years ahead. Every book I write takes only 14 weeks to write, but it takes two years to research. Um, and of course, I just have to keep going to all these places for you. Um, <laughs> I do. But let me tell you, whilst a, a year ago, when I was on tour, it was in Sydney, a big gang like this said, when are you going to do one of your tours again somewhere fabulous so we can walk in the footsteps of, um, you know, of your books and your characters? And they put me under a lot of pressure. And I said, oh, next year. So they did it again when I got there. They said, you promised. And I was ready for them. So we are doing another tour. We are taking um, a group to France. And we're going to walk in the footsteps of some of the books. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to try and hit the time when the Chanel roses are out and being harvested so that we can go and learn to make our own perfume. So we'll, we'll do the perfumer's secret. Um, even though the chocolate tin is not set in Paris, we're going to eat a lot of chocolate <laughs> and follow the chocolate tin. We are, my husband and I are saying, maybe we can get them into York. We can do a quick trip into York and we can do the chocolate story, but we are going to do the champagne story for you as well. So we're going to go into Epinay and we're going to just go into the cellars and just get hammered down there somewhere. <laughs> so um, it's a beautiful trip coming up. Um, so if you're interested, um, I have to tell you about 300 people have put their names down and there won't be 300 people going, but um, if you're interested, I will have a little um, piece of paper um, I'll put it out outside, and if you want to just put your email down, even if you just want to dream, put your email down, and I'll send you the details in due course, and you can have a look at it. Who's not on my newsletter, and why? <laughs> if you're not receiving my newsletter, you should be. Um, the Christmas one is going out in the next few days, so if you do want to receive it, there's all sorts of early news, you get early chapters. I will tell you what we're all wearing next year because I've just come back from London. I'll tell you the colours you should be buying, the colours you should be avoiding. Um, and I give you loads and loads of recipes. So um, if you want to go on the newsletter, again, there'll be a little uh, form out there. You just need to write it clearly. Don't make me think, is that an E or an F? or a Just put your name down clearly and I'll make sure you go on the newsletter if you want to. So... I'm being wound up here. I thought I'd tell you... Can I have just two more minutes? Okay. Would you like to hear a funny story? Yeah. Okay, all right. I'm going to tell you about this diamond bracelet. Did you see what I did just then? I can do... You see, I can do this with my diamond bracelet, and I can do this with it. And I do it a lot when I'm thinking. I take my diamond bracelet off, and I roll my diamond bracelet on, and I do this, and I drive everyone around me mad because they keep saying... You're going to lose that. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story about 
um, a holiday that happened earlier this year. I never take holidays, ever. I don't like holidays. I actually, I know this is terrible. It's sort of blasphemous, but I find them very boring, actually. A holiday is super boring. Because what, what do you do? <laughs> what, are you, what are you all doing? You're just sitting there, aren't you? And you're thinking about the next meal. And, you know, hopefully you're reading fabulous books <laughs> by me, but... What are you all doing? It's you're just wasting your life. So I like to be on the move. I like to be doing something. So I never holiday, but I am always traveling. And I like to see new places and meet new people and learn, learn, learn. I'm a voracious... Uh, I like to be educated about things. So anyway, my husband said, the only time you ever look at me, and it's not often... Um, <laughs> Because I am like that uh, roadrunner. You know, I'm always like, hello, you know, and I've gone already. And I'm like, the dinner's in the oven sort of thing. So I'm really awful. I've, I race my children through childhood. I've raced through our marriage. I realize we're about to celebrate 37 years or something. And I don't know where that's gone. But I've been very busy in that time. So, <laughs> you know, and Ian's just been waiting, waiting, waiting <laughs> for me to notice that he is my husband. And so... He said, the only time, the only time you look at me is if I take you away somewhere. And so he said, so we're going away. We're going on holiday. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to go on holiday. So anyway, and he said, and it gets worse. We're going on a ship. So you can't get off. You can't go anywhere. You can walk in a circle, but I'll be waiting right there when you come back. So... You know, I was going to feel imprisoned and everything, but he said, no, come on, you need to, you really... So I said, okay, all right. So he said, but wait, I'm going to... And I need you to slow down, speak slowly, look at me for longer than two minutes. And he said, what I'm going to do is fly us into Madrid and we're going to overnight in Madrid. And he said, you're going to go to bed early. And I, he could see me tense. And he said, I'm not going to try and touch you. <laughs> Just, you're just going to have a relaxing night, have a bath, do what it is that girls like. And I said, certainly not that. We like a bath. We like Netflix. We just want to be left alone, actually. We're quite, quite happy, um, you know. So he said, you're going to do all of that. And he said, in the morning, you're going to get up late. I'm not going to try and touch you. And you're going to go upstairs and have a leisurely breakfast. And I said, okay, this is all sounding good. And he said... And then calmly, Fiona, calmly, without any tension or any rush, we are going to check out at that hotel and we're going to calmly walk across this road to where the train station is and then we're going to catch a train to where we pick up the ship. So that all sounded lovely and that is exactly what happened We to a point. We, <laughs> we got... Everything was lovely. We had gone and had a leisurely breakfast. We'd gone, we'd checked out, and we were just leaving the hotel, and we were waiting by the, the road and waiting for the man to turn green so that we could cross. And Ian looked at me, and he said, now this is what I mean. He said, I want this, this calm, collected attitude. You've had a lovely conversation with me over breakfast. Do, do, do. And the man went boop, 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 and we started crossing. Now, something I do, because you've already all forgotten what we're talking about, and I nearly did, the bracelet, right, which I take off and I take on and I take off and I take on. I put my finger out and I do this many times a day to feel that it's there, you see. 
And I put my finger up and I couldn't feel it. So I put my finger up a little further and it was not there. And I just dropped everything and screamed in the middle of five lanes of traffic. <laughs> and Ian swung around. I mean, I know his blood pressure went through the roof because he thought, you know, has she been run over? What, what, what? He turned around and he looked at me and he said, what? And I said, my bracelet's gone, my bracelet's gone, my bracelet's gone. And I started, my bracelet's gone. And he said, he, poor chap. He just, he ran in, grabbed my stuff and took me to this sort of island in the middle of this. And he stood there and he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to find it, Ian. <laughs> and he said, oh, it could be anywhere. How do you know you even, you probably didn't wear it. You, you know, the, the husband's like, you've probably got it at home. You know, we can ring the boys. And I said, no. I had it on this morning. I know I had it on this morning. So he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to, you stay here. Don't move. I'm going back to find it. And he was like this, and I'd already gone. I was stopping traffic like this, and I was <laughs> running across the road. And you know how you leave a hotel, and the hotel is like, oh, did you have a lovely stay, madam? And you're like, lovely, lovely, oh, lovely. Do come again. What they don't want is for you to actually come again really quickly. <laughs> Because you're annoying now. You're an annoying guest with a, clearly with a problem, you know. And I could see his face dropping as I walked back to the desk. And also I had this wild-eyed stare. So definitely something had gone wrong. And he said, Mrs. McIntosh, and I said, I have lost my diamond bracelet somewhere in this hotel. And like any man, any stupid man like my husband, he said, what would you like me to do about that? <laughs> He's lucky I just didn't deck him you know I said I want you to find it and he said well I've got people who need to check in here I can't do and he could see it it was just coming so he said I'm going to give you this key card back to your room and you go up and have a look in your room and he was sort of like trying to get rid of me and I grabbed the key card and I ran upstairs and you know when you're looking in a panicked way, you look, at, look, you look in the toilet, don't you? You look in the, you look, uh, you lift the bed in superhuman strength and look under there. With one hand, you're looking under a double bed because you think somehow it's got under there. You look in cupboards that you didn't open, in drawers that you never touched. I looked, I was on all fours. I looked out of the window. I could see Ian in the middle of the, uh, you know. And I thought, no. No, I've got to find it. it and I was leaving the room thinking, where, where? I'll look in the corridor, I'll go down, you know, I'll weave around the corridors. And then I thought, the breakfast room. And so I ran up to the breakfast room and I got to the opening and there were all these lovely holiday makers, you know, go clink, 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 all talking, all having a lovely time. And I got to the doorway and I yelled at the top of my voice, stop, like this. <laughs> this is the absolute truth. And they all froze. And I said, up. And <laughs> I did, I promise. Everyone stood up. If I said that to you right now, you'd all do it. Because groups are very obedient. They don't mean to be, but we get a herd-like mentality. And we just do what one person, some random stranger, is saying, stop and up. And they all stood up. And I said, Start looking under all those cushions. I'm um, looking for my uh, diamond bracelet. Could you look in the muesli? Because I had muesli. Um, <laughs> some poor man was stirring the Bursch muesli. 
some woman, the fruit salad, look in the fruit salad. I said to um, one man, on your knees, sir, down there. Look, I was sitting there, up, up, up. Everybody was on the move looking, everyone. Spaniards, French, Brits, they were everywhere, they were looking. The waitresses, I said, could you go out to the rubbish bin and start looking? Could you look in all the dishwashers? I sent them mad. And I was like a real Nazi, you know. I was like giving out all these orders, not doing anything myself, just giving out all these orders. And I looked out again and I could see Ian. He was now like this. And I know what was going through. He was thinking, well, that's it then. There's no sex for this holiday. I left her alone, but I'm getting nothing. And we might as well just cancel this. You know, he was just really maudlin. And I thought, I looked at my watch and I thought, oh my gosh, I've only got about sort of 17 minutes before I need to be in that station. Anyway, they were lovely. These people came, put their arms around me and said, listen, you go and we're going to keep looking. And if we find it, and we will find it, we promise you, as I was about to scream, they said, we will find it and we will take it down to reception and just keep ringing the hotel. We're going to find this bracelet by hook or by crook. And so they sent me on my way and I really, I knew there was nothing more anyone could do. So I got in the lift and I went downstairs and I, and I remember the lift opened like this and I walked out and I was crying by now. I walked out and I looked over at the man and he was spinning <laughs> like this. And I said, how? And he said, that little couple over there, and there was this tiny little English couple, they were lovely, and he said, he found it. And I screamed, and they looked around, they could see me coming, and I just ran at them. <laughs> and I ran at him in particular, and I jumped on him, and I just kissed every inch of his face. <laughs> I was just showering him with kisses. And he, I, he turned to his wife, and he said, God, blimey, this is how you start a holiday, love, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I was kissing, kissing. And I said, where did you find it? And she said, it was on the floor. It was just on the floor here. And my husband picked it up and showed it to me. And I said, ooh, Sunburn's holiday's just been ruined. And uh, I said, I've got to go. And they said, go, go. And I went out of the door. And I thought, oh, I'll keep it going. So I, I stood at the... <laughs> I stood like that. And Ian was looking at me. And I could see him thinking... Right, I'm going to call the airline and we're just going to cancel. We're just going to give this all a big miss because she's going to be a misery. And I would have been. But as I got halfway across, I, got, I went like this. <laughs> so he was like, sex! You know, it was just... <laughs> it was so funny. It was, I mean... I have lost this three times and it's come back to me three times. Next time I'm here in front of you... Ask me about us buying this uh, bracelet because we call it in the family heart attack bracelet and I'll explain why when I see you but I think everybody wants to go home now. So I'll say goodbye and blow you all a kiss. Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much, Fiona. Um, on behalf of everyone, I'd like to thank you for taking all those trips for us on our behalf. Um, I also feel like I have uh, learned some great relationship advice for my wife and I next time we're on holiday. Or what not, ask, not, what not to ask her uh, when she loses something. Um, but thank you so much. Now, um, we might, if it's okay, we might skip the questions just because we're running short on time. Or we might maybe take two or three questions. Two or three questions. Two or three questions, is that right, Suman? 
All right, got to be quick. Who's, who's, who's got, got a question? question? Anyone got a question? Yeah, great. So maybe just these three at the front here, if that's okay. Get off. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> My stage. Hello. Hello. When did the laser um, marking of diamonds start? What year? Uh, it started in the 1960s. I can't give you the exact year, but it was about the 1960s when that started to happen. Thank you. Pleasure. Yes. I'm sorry I talked so long. I did have an underwear story, but next time. <laughs> next time. Hello. Hello. I'd like to know who decides what to write on the back of the book so when we pick it up, we think, yep, I want to read that one. Um, that is a combination of my editor, who's very good at writing those blurbs, and me. So I always write a long blurb and then she cuts it right back to what you read. So she's the power there. Thank you. And I hope it does make you want to read it. It's, it takes a lot of skill to actually... You only have 100 words to encapsulate the whole book. And so you have to really um, tease someone, but at the same time sell them on the idea, oh, yes, I do want to read this, especially if they're a stranger to my books. If they're not, then I can count on you to think, oh, it's one of Fiona's. She'll, I'm sure she won't let us down. But if you're new to my books, you need that blurb. Yeah, thank you. Hello. I'm wondering, what did Cousin Andrew think of the book when it was finally finished? Oh, that's a good question. He read it, he read it as a manuscript and he wrote back in huge um, exclamations, oh, what a book, what a story, people are going to love this. And he said, but don't you dare put a, a burb tree in the story. Um, and I thought, it's already gone. It's already done. It's done, Andrew, it's gone. Because he said burb trees were not... Uh, he didn't remember them anywhere around Kimberley, but we needed that tree. It's part of the character uh, at the end of the story, so I needed it, and I thought, well. And then he wrote back and he said, you did it. Because he didn't see, he didn't see the final moment, but I did do it. And he said, you wicked girl, you did do it. And I said, yeah, we needed it for the story, so I took some license there. But he absolutely loved it. And he said, what else can I help you with? But <laughs> I don't think he can help me with any of the others that I'm writing. All right, well, I'm going to go outside and if I haven't uh, signed your book, I would love to sign your book for you. And thank you all. Hope you have a lovely, lovely Christmas and I'll see you all next year. Thank you.